Welcome to the Tone That Made Us podcast. I'm James, and my co-host and friend of far too many years, Dan Cav, love to shoot the shit about gear. We send each other pictures all day long. My wife's going, who are you texting with? And then she sees it's Dan and it's guitars, and she walks away in disgust. (laughs) So today we welcome a dear friend of many decades, hailing from Indiana. He's played in bands like Split Lip, Chamberlain, Dear Lion, his own solo records. He's a singer, songwriter, composer, musical director. He's done work for dozens of films, TV, and commercial that you've probably seen. Maybe some you haven't. Um, We both have a massive respect for him for not only having the talent and foresight to show that hardcore guitar players and hardcore bands that they can evolve they can grow, they can play far more melodic music. And I have to say, even though we're contemporaries and friends, he's been a, a pretty big influence on uh, how I approached playing guitar as I became an adult. So welcome, Adam Rubenstein. That was a really kind introduction and really thorough. I appreciate that. <laughs> you got it, man. Welcome. Thank so you. I want to start off the podcast kind of the way we start them all off, which is what was the first time, not the first time you saw a band, but what was the first instrument you saw that inspired you to say, I want to do that? Well, uh, it's funny because there's, um, there's like no musicians in my family. I'm kind of the only, uh, well, it's not entirely true. Um, now but growing up i wasn't aware of of other musicians in the family and we didn't have a lot of music around like my dad maybe listened to like john denver and johnny cash and that was kind of like all i ever heard but what i want to say is it's kind of an odd thing to say but i mean the first piece of gear that inspired me i think was like in the growing up in the 80s was like the cable box (laughs) because you had mtv i mean mtv came around right and um, I didn't own a guitar, but, um, you know, I was seeing like police videos for the first time and just like, you know, the video for like Synchronicity 2 with like the giant like mountain of like guitars Andy Summers is on, on top of. And um, that's the best. That's my favorite police song, by the way. Oh, yeah. Me, uh, I can't I don't want to go on the record, but it's, it's definitely one <laughs> of my top five favorite police songs. Um, but it was just the MTV generation. And seeing you know um mark knopfler men at work or like any of like there was in hindsight you know people kind of shit on the 80s but there was a lot of good music and um, that inspired me to like want to ask my parents to buy a guitar was just watching videos and being like a cable tv junkie um but you know other than music we maybe had one of those like realistic brand like casio ripoffs like little uh whatever they were a little like, like the sk1 yes like the <laughs> sk1 like we had like the generic version so i would like you know my brother and i would you know do fart noises and sync samples into it but um <laughs> I, I wish i had a better answer for like what was the first piece of gear that inspired me but literally it may have been the cable box or the the, the, the little casio that works yeah it's a valid uh it's a different approach than we've heard before, for sure. And also, after when you said that also, I realized that a lot of the people we've had on so far have been older enough that they're talking about their 
childhoods in the 70s. So it's a whole other approach. And that's been probably a majority of people we've interviewed so far. Yeah, that's a very good observation. It's wild. Let, let's not talk about aging, but yes, that is a, <laughs> that is a wild observation. Yeah, on the record, Dan will be 50 in like three and a half weeks. Congrats. I don't know if that's a congrats. I said, I said, you made it, Wendell. I said, congrats. I mean, congrats. <laughs> okay. So, um, what was, uh, let's, let's get to you bugging the shit out of your parents to get you your first guitar. Well, it was weird. I, um, I got my first guitar on my nine year old birthday and I just wanted a guitar. I wanted a guitar. And then my mom, went and basically got me a guitar and she got me my first guitar was like a little half size i couldn't tell you the make like it was kind of like the level of like a samic now but it was like it had some sort of you know uh spanish name um under the sound hole but i i have no idea what kind of guitar it was um and it was kind of a letdown because um i had the guitar for like a year and a half as a nylon string guitar. Um, I, she got me lessons at like the local guitar shop and I went in and they were basically, you know, teaching me circle of fifths and hot cross buns. And when the saints go marching in and I was just like, fuck this, like, this isn't any fun. <laughs> this isn't, I wanted to play synchronicity too. And this is not synchronicity too. <laughs> um, this sounds like Aldi Miola. So, um, yeah, I uh, I put it down for um, almost a year and a half. And then um, once I started kind of figuring out chords and stuff, I just started making up songs before I knew how to play. And then I was in love with it. That's got to be one of the cruelest jokes on a child or a, a young adolescent with small hands mm. is to put a nylon string classical big fat neck guitar in their hands it's it's almost like you give somebody a guitar with horrible action that never yeah. stays in tune like here get hooked on this instrument <laughs> so uh, how old were you at that point i was nine and then by the time i was 10 um like I said, I think I figured out what like a G and a C and a D chord were. And uh, I remember one of the first songs I learned was like The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel. And I actually was like, oh, you can just, this is just like C and A minor and you can sing along to it. Um, and I wish that, you know, my guitar instructor wasn't trying to like pull a Mr. Miyagi and teach me how to paint the fence first because I just wanted to get into rock and roll. You know, I just wanted to... <laughs> to bang on it and, and sing. And, and from that point, I, you know, I felt like I was, um, you know, making pop music or making rock music stuff that I had been, you know, turned on to from, you know, like I said, the, the cable box in the early days of MTV. Nice. So you've been playing for quite a while then probably close to 40 years at this point. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, sorry, sorry to make you feel. <laughs> yeah. Which is, a, it's a crazy thing to think about because I'm sure we all think about it. Um, we all think about the fact that, um, you know, we, we should be like, we should have like Satriani chops at this stage in our lives, but like none of us do. <laughs> um, just if you, if you add up all the years, um, I think we all get to a certain point where like, you figure out your style and then you sort yeah. of like pause for a little while. Yeah, I, uh, 
I've practiced about 12 minutes for my entire guitar playing career. <laughs> <laughs> so my chops yeah. never got any better than they were to start. Well, uh, you, you learn, you learn power chords. That's what happens. Like, yeah, you know, that's all I, need. I got, I mean, I went from like the MTV stuff, like right into like full blown metalhead. You know, I was listening to like, um, everything from like Exodus to like Anthrax, Metallica, Crumb Suckers, Creator, Nuclear Salt. Like I was just into like anything that was like thrash or metal. And then once I learned power chords and got my first electric guitar, yeah, it, it, I didn't practice a whole lot. <laughs> so then what was, uh, what was the first electric guitar? When did you move up to an electric and uh, what were you playing with then? Yeah, I was bummed. And um, my parents are both from Memphis and we visited grandparents every summer. And I, I talked my dad into maybe when I was 11 or 12, I don't quite remember, um, into buying my first electric guitar. So he took me to a little shop in, in Memphis and um, I saw this like red Stratocaster um i thought it was awesome it wasn't a stratocaster though it was an applause oh. <laughs> a, i think it was a K korean made company i don't think they're around anymore but it was a red strat copy um and then i got that and it's actually my feet i got a little um you know solid state 10 inch amp uh called a, a it was fame was the brand all just off-brand things nice and there was like you know add a button on it that said tube blaster and when you hit the tube blaster button, you would get like, you know, this super cool, you know, Hendrix style fuzz. And, uh, I was just, that was it, man. Like I was, you know, I was in love. I just didn't leave my bedroom once I, I had those two items. So it's, so let's first off, shout out to all the jobber distributor import little <laughs> amplifiers that, that helped us all become who we are. But just about every podcast, I guess it's because I've been around the industry for a little while, always kind of comes full circle back to the company I work for. So that applause strat was an ovation. It was Ovation's so ovation import line, right? Owned the applause brand. You know, it was their sub brand, and they mainly made acoustic guitars that look like ovations under the applause the applause name and and imported but that was actually a very uh a, like a, a mid to late 80s uh import electric ovation that you had yeah and um i kind of wish i still had it like it was it ended up being like a cool guitar i mean it was an applause when i covered it with stickers i had like a dag nasty and a dri sticker and yes. like it looked cool it was like <laughs> you know um i miss it i wish i still had it with all the stickers on it but anyway i traded it sorry go ahead no no you got i traded it in for like a, a pv like t60 those like kitchen cabinet looking guys yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, um i had that that was like yeah I graduated from the applause to that. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know if I liked it any better. It was a tough guitar to play. They're they're not easy. I have a T60 and a T40. I have the bass and the guitar. Oh wow! And uh, they're both so heavy. Yeah. And Kitchen just kind of cumbersome. Uh, I like playing the bass way more than I like playing that guitar. Uh, but the guitar sounds great. It's just unwieldy and heavy and. Yeah. It's not heavier than your Alembic though. No, no, that thing is just, it's like a refrigerator hanging. That's a kitchen table. 
yeah. with a strap on it. Is the Alembic, the your base, your base. Yeah, yeah. I have an yeah. Alembic, uh, 1980 series one. Uh, yeah, those those long those were like the bases that everybody wanted right in that era. I, I looked into them. it. I, I can't. <laughs> yeah. I I managed to afford it. I got a great deal on it from a friend and uh, managed to score that. And it's there's no reason that I should have a base that John Paul Jones owned. It should that should not be allowed. <laughs> Stanley Clark owns it. I shouldn't be allowed. They should come take it. Wow. Actually, it's Sorry. pretty funny to see him playing it at the Ritz on stage with absolution at <laughs> at a at a black and blue bowl. <laughs> Wait, wearing you it were like wearing neck high. <laughs> the whole band was wearing pretty much, all white. Yeah. It was really weird. Yeah. Huh. It was intentional. I was like, I'm playing this at a hardcore show just so I can say I played I this at a hardcore show. <laughs> yeah. Bases with external rack-mounted preamps really right. don't need to be played at hardcore shows. No. So, the, so the PV was that what you were playing the? Fr- so let's get into sort of you playing in with other people for the first time. Was that about that time when you got that PV? Well, I got the PV I think right when I joined Split Lip, um, just because I had realized that the applause was kind of just like a, um, a bit a bit of a like toy guitar <laughs> you know it wasn't uh no one had those and um i knew the brand pv so i was like oh and then i got a pv amp too i got a pv renown which was just loud as all holy hell yeah. and uh another solid state thing it was just um you know i was playing in a punk rock band and i wanted to you know that was that was the best stuff that I could afford at the time, like all yeah, used dude. stuff. Yeah, we were all there. It was either a renown or a butcher. We all, yeah. Kinda, I think was all of our first heads. Actually, Dan, what was your first head? My first guitar head was technically it was it had no name. Uh, it was just like a I don't know. I have no idea who made it. Um, but after that, uh. It was some kind of PV. Yeah. I don't remember. It would that the first thing I had it was like a mini, it's like a 212 and mini head solid state thing that I traded some other gear for in West Virginia. Um when I it was really I just wanted to start playing a guitar instead of just bass. Oh, so right, I traded some gear for it. Bass through your teens. Yeah. That was when you went to college, huh? Yeah. All my early stuff was bass. When you were a star lacrosse player, that's another podcast. (laughs) Hardly a Um, star. (laughs) So cool. So split lip at that time. So that's funny because you join your first band as a teenager. Well, I should clarify. That actually wasn't my first band. My first band was a punk band called Decrepit. And I was the singer. It was me um, and a bass player and um, and a drummer with a three-piece. But... um, I did play the applause in that band. Um, but then Split Lip was kind of like they they like poached me essentially. Um and then, you know, um I preferred not having to sing, sing and play guitar. Sing and play guitar, yeah. <laughs> That's a tough thing to do as a teenager. It's a tough uh, thing what? to do as an adult. Uh, yeah. I was like I was like twelve actually. I wasn't even a teenager. <laughs> but yeah. So those those guys went, I think that kid's got something. Well, I mean, I'd met Curtis. I mean, so skateboarding kind of, you know, if you talk about gear, like, I mean, 
having skateboards is what kind of brings you together in i think a lot of our scenes a lot of our you know the collective hardcore and punk rock scene i feel like everybody skated i mean correct me if i'm wrong i don't know if you guys skated but yeah oh, we did yeah, yeah okay <laughs> and it's how we got into punk you know skate videos yeah santa I mean, cruz videos pal videos totally sure i was wearing like a santa cruz like slime ball sweatshirt i think when i met curtis from split lip and chamberlain and he went to my junior high school and we just became friends like day one because you know skate respect skate <laughs> especially in, in in carmel indiana where um you know it's the wealthiest suburb in in uh in indiana and um you know we were just kind of like we were some of the few sort of counterculture people at our, at our junior high school. I mean, there's other skaters, there was a local skate shop and stuff, but that's where we lived and that's what we did. And that, you know, that just led to music because we all, you know, liked songs that were in, you know, Powell and Peralta videos and stuff like that. Absolutely. Those are like the first days of networking. Yeah. I remember like fire hose, oh, um, like raging full on and, you know, Wait. agent orange, like stuff that I like, I discovered all that stuff from skate videos. And we all do. Yeah. When you see somebody else with a skateboard, you just walk up and you're like, yo, go skate together. Yeah. Like the, kids don't make friends like this anymore. Like <laughs> kids don't walk up to strangers and go, I've got something in common with you. Let's hang. It just doesn't happen anymore. It's, uh, it was also, it was a unifying theme of safety and numbers too. Oh yeah. That was a time frame where we were distinctly outcasts. If you were a skater, you were an outcast, period. Absolutely. Skater die, dude. Like I can't tell you how many times like oh. that guy like while you're getting a shake thrown at you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> skater die. Yeah. And you weren't just running from your peers. You were running from the cops. Skateboarding legit kids out there. Skateboarding was legitimately would legitimately get you thrown in the back of a cop car if you were skateboarding in a parking lot and they call the cops on you. Absolutely. Absolutely. We see, you know, we we all like take down the no skateboarding signs and steal them. I think I still have one at my parents' house. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. All right, cool. So let's talk about the beginnings of split lip. Um yeah, I mean, it, it kind of all happened organically. Like, Decrepit, my punk band, played a couple shows, actually, with Split Lip. And then, you know, they kind of... I don't remember who. I think it must have been Curtis who asked me to to join and, and jam. And um, we did. And, you know, Clay was the other guitar player. So we had, like, a bigger sound. We had a different singer at the time, this guy Steve. And um, we were just a... just a We were a band from the beginning. Um uh you know charlie had just joined the band and uh um yeah we were playing like all the local like knights of columbus's and birthday parties and whatever we could do um and it just there, there was actually like a little punk rock scene in 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 sort of like uh underage suburban northern indianapolis there was some really actually really really great um great sort of underground and hardcore bands um growing up so um yeah that we became our whole little bubble our whole little little universe kind of right away awesome awesome 
what um what gear did you finally settle into once you guys started to do it you know starting to really like record and tour and well, i think like i kind of always followed clay's lead i didn't like know a lot about gear clay was the other guitar player in split lip and like he had like a really nice ibanez and it sounded awesome and then he had a fender m80 head so i couldn't afford the cabinet gray fuzz red knobs yep gray fuzz I so one. i have one now wow wow i have an m80 well, chorus wow well clay had the gray fuzzy cabinet too to go with matching yes. gray fuzzy cabinet i did not yeah i took the pv renown it was a it was a combo but i took the you know the electronics out of it and just used the 212 speed or 210 speed the cabinet I made it the cabinet and then i had the m80 on top of it and it didn't sound as good as clay's and then i couldn't afford the like you know top of the line ibanez that clay had whatever he had so i got like a, the ibanez like ex series with like the kind of cheap floyd rose and um so we could do dive bombs and that whole thing nice um but yeah the uh, I, ibanez and the m80 like that that was like the split lip sound for a, a really long time in the, the first seven inch and first record yeah that was it oh so that for love of the wounded that's on actually that? no 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 yes no it's not on for the love of the wounded by for the love of the wounded i had bought uh like an american standard strat which was not like the cool which wasn't like a common guitar for like hardcore no not at all. um but i just i don't know i picked up like a silver strat at a guitar shop and i loved it and nice figured out a way to make the single coils you know sound big <laughs> so you were still using that through the the m80 no um okay. so now you're jogging now i'm just really trying to remember like when <laughs> the turnover happened this is what we do <laughs> yeah um <laughs> man i wish charlie was on this call because he he'd remember everything um <laughs> There's no test. It doesn't have to be exact. No, I may have still had the Ibanez actually. And it was sort of like before, right after we recorded, I think I got the, cause I can't remember being in the studio with the silver strat. I must've gotten it right after we recorded. I think I still did record for the love of the wounded with the Ibanez with the EX series. And then, yeah. And then I got a strat and then if clay got a JCM 800 and I was like, wow, this sounds a lot better than the M80. So then I couldn't find, you know, he had like a cool older 800. I couldn't find one. So I got like a 90s JCM 900. Um, and we both, you know, had the channel switching heads. Um, and that was awesome because, you know, back then, I didn't have any pedals back then, right? It was just like loud, quiet, loud, quiet. So if yeah. I, with a 900, <laughs> you had the clean channel and the super high gain channel. And that was, I didn't think I needed anything else ever. Well, and you guys mixed it up a lot. Even like in the middle of songs, you would click into the clean channel for half a measure and then right back into into the dirty. That sure. was kind of the thing then. The loud, quiet thing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so just because I have to ask, do you remember, was it a dual reverb or was it a dual master? There oh. were actually two different JCMs and a couple people I know uh, didn't have the one they thought they had. So I'm just curious. I had, I did have a dual reverb for a while. Um, 900. I, I yeah. don't think my 900 had reverb, if I remember correctly. Or did it? Man, I don't <laughs> remember. I haven't had it in so long. 
you feel like you got a spotlight on you and you were, we're grilling you. Yeah. I was like, There's no I'm wrong not, answer. You can just no, make I'm, stuff up. We'll never know. I was thinking that I was like remembering everything and I'm just like, shit, I forgot. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't, th- I don't think mine had, did they made it without reverb, right? The 900? Uh, or do they all have reverb? Honestly, I don't know. Don't if know. they did, I didn't talking. use. The, I didn't use the reverb. Ryan Rhodes. Ryan <laughs> <laughs> so what were you? Uh, what were you playing when you got that nine hundred? What kind of cabinet were you going through? Did you stick with the same cabinet? Well, no. Then I upgraded to um, a Mesa four twelve, like one of the ones with like the big iron grate nice. in the front of it. Yeah, yeah, the Mark series ones. Yeah, those are great. Um, and um, strangely. Um, I also had gotten a, um, what was it? The, um, the Mesa, then I got a Mesa like studio preamp. Um, nice. and I think I switched back to the 900, but yeah, I like a Mesa studio preamp, which I like lost in our, uh, in our, um, I left it in Matt Reese, who was like our tour manager forever. I left it in his like parents basement and never saw it again oh. <laughs> i would love to have that thing back there's a lot of things i would love to have back uh, we'll get um, there too there's yeah. uh we we have a, a portion of this podcast where we talk about regrets um <laughs> yeah you know it's I, funny the 900 has becoming more and more prevalent in our conversations you know stefan from all and descendants mm-hmm. He he was saying that was the key to his like that all tone. Yeah. I mean everybody had one, right? I mean, it was like, you know, and then you saw like, you know, Fagazi played Marshalls and you know, you wanted one too. Like Right. Not everybody like, could get a park JMP. That's true. The park. Yeah. So yeah. um for the love of the wounded comes out even though there's some melodic parts to it, you guys start playing around with more than just the average hardcore stuff. At that time, there's a lot of hardcore going on. There's a lot of fast. There's a lot of aggressive. There's a lot of straight ahead. Even on that record, you guys were not as straight ahead. You guys broke it up a little bit. What were your influences at that point, guitar-wise? Whew. Um, Brian, don't speak for Clay. Just speak for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I won't speak for Clay. Um, I don't even know if I could. Um, you know, Brian Baker was a big one. Yeah. Um, because you know I loved Curtis too. Um, we loved Agnasty because they were like we loved all the Discord stuff really. Um, you know, uh, you know, Doctor No. Um anybody from the scene that was doing something that was melodic and like different um you're putting me on spider i'm trying to think of like but yeah and and fagazi too you know as much as those guys weren't like dazzling guitar players like ian's like inventiveness was just like unparalleled and he blended noise and just um super melodic uh guitar lines and lead lines and vocal parts that just made them unique and we were a funny band because we were you know playing with like the snap cases and the dead guys and the you know tough guy bands um at the time but um we always wanted to kind of marry that sort of um 
energy of the hardcore scene, which we loved. And, you know, I mean, we love seven seconds. Um, super melodic. Yeah, super melodic stuff. So Uniform Choice got super melodic. Yeah, sure. Yo, Uniform Choice. Yeah. Um, this is an aside, but I just saw seven seconds in Philadelphia and they played for an hour, hour and 20 minutes, whatever. They played a very long set. Every hit you possibly could have wanted. They were absolutely phenomenal from beginning to end. And those are not young dudes anymore. No. And it was everything I wanted it to be. And it just shocks me that I'm happy. I was hap as happy with something as I was seeing them play. And Sammy did a great job with them. Oh, fantastic. It was great. Yeah. I love that dude. I saw some videos online. Like it, it was, it was really good. Um, but you know, when I met Curtis and we used to hang out together, I mean, Curtis had cure posters all over his room. I mean, the whole, he like, he like fanboyed out to the cure. Um, Nothing wrong with that. No. And, it, and it's funny. And our first seven inch was just, we were trying to be endpoint or integrity or, you know, we were trying to just be as hard as we could. And then, you know, our, our true colors sort of came out, you know, the recording of for the love of the wounded, you know, I had an acoustic, I brought my little Alvarez, my crappy Alvarez acoustic from home. And um, we did like an, you know, an intro to the song Crestfallen. Like I had to have like an acoustic intro. Yep. And, you know, um, there's a song called Show and Tell where we decided we needed to put like a bongo break in the middle of it. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know where we got these like silly ideas. But you're um, progressing. It was, it's something that uh, as a, as a fan of the record, uh, it's one of the things that set you guys apart was the differences you were incorporating, even at that time. So it wasn't missed on people that were listening to the record. There's a lot of us that, regardless of it, if you thought something was weird or like, where did it come from? Mm. It was definitely, there was a lot to be said for anything different at that point yeah. within our scene. Yeah. Especially in the realm of melodic music, something that was trying to be more melodic. I appreciate that because I feel like that was that was always the aim, you know, because we would play with other bands like Farside or um, I'm trying to think of some other examples, like a, a lot of Revelation stuff, um, you know, I mean, hell, like Into Another, like they were just the unicorn band of the scene. We're just like, wow, oh, yeah. everyone like incredible players and incredible parts and um, Shudder to Think. Um, there's like I could just go on and on about like all these like and there's nothing against like I like burn I like like other just like straight ahead um you know New York hardcore stuff like I like that stuff too but um like I said I, I grew up like loving like Andy Summers like it was hard to like shake that and yeah. a lot of the thrash metal stuff I I like you know definitely had these like you know weird chamber orchestral moments in them <laughs> like a lot no, of those it's... bands it makes a lot of sense. We have these conversations a lot now thinking back. I was having conversations with numerous people probably over the last couple of months where when you were a punk kid, you were a hardcore kid, you weren't allowed to listen to anything else. And like, if you did, you got shit on for listening to something else. And I think that bands like you guys, bands like Farside, bands like Into Another, they gave other people in the scene permission to go it's okay to like expand it's okay to love what you love and it's okay to experiment with something new and create this new sound this new tone this new direction that going into the 90s going into sort of like 
fate's got a driver days with you guys was a real pivotal time for the scene and there were a few bands that were adding a melodic element that changed hardcore to this post-hardcore thing right and quicksand fugazi they were all the ones that kind of sparked our age uh, us guys into saying Mm -hmm. we could take that another step further yeah absolutely um so so by the way ryan rhodes marshall usa says the 2100 and the 2500 slx didn't have reverb so all the 900s did have reverb the slx is a different head yeah different head so they said 2100 2500 didn't have reverb those were the only two yeah so i guess two of them did two of them didn't i think there were four yeah I mean, I, mean so, I might have disconnected my springs or something. Like, I don't remember. Because I don't remember using reverb on it. Anyway. So let's get to the first version. Yes. The only version. It's got a driver. The split lip version? The split lip version of Fate's Got a Driver. Nobody ever talks about this. And some, you know, I think, by the way, I don't know if you know, but there's actually a band that name themselves fate's got a driver yeah i know okay so I, I'm, you know, I'm aware of the band okay so eddie from taking yeah. back sunday ended up being one of the founders of that band they moved on they're still playing together and uh but this when anybody brings up that record and like oh man i love that record i'm like you gotta hear the split lip version hold on i'll send it uh, to you. well it's a different mix and it's um david and i went up to detroit and like you know, kind of redid all the vocals. Cause the thing was, we like, we went on tour after we recorded that record and we were just on fire. Like we just sounded the best we'd ever sounded. David sounded the best he'd ever sounded. Mm-hmm. So, and when we went back and listened to the record and we're like, we gotta redo this. And at the time we, we had, um, you know, split lip was kind of like a goofy name that we came up with, you know, when we were kids, I mean, we were still kids. It's a good teenage hardcore younger- band name yeah but but that's what it was we were in the hardcore scene and then with fates we were kind of evolving into just sort of more of a melodic rock band and we were frustrated by the scene like we we're frustrated to just play with tough guy bands like every single night and we're like this name is not doing us any favors everyone just assumes that we are like should be on a bill with integrity like that right. split up integrity um so we just decided to change the name and then I mean, God bless Dirk at Doghouse for doing it. But I was like, can we just put out the same record and just call it something else? <laughs> like, who does that? Yeah, well, and that was it's amazing that you even asked. <laughs> I know. We could have just made another record. Like, it's ridiculous. I don't know but, if there are a lot of bands in or out of our scene that have ever went from being one band playing one kind of music, changing their name to be another band playing progressive music and and never having i mean other than you know whatever your first singer who you know really kind of didn't exist on record um never having a band member change well we did late 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 in the game um i call those we (laughs) i call those the dead horse years because we were just sort of kicking the dead horse (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just because we were sort of you know once like the original guys weren't in the band we, we went on for like another year 
and it was just like we we did some good stuff but it was sort of like we lost our identity and lost our fire and it just, just um we just didn't know what else to do with ourselves yeah. um but yeah but but you know we just played shows a couple months ago the same guys are on the first split lip seven inch yep um we really haven't had any, any uh, uh a change but the thing i find interesting is sure, certainly bands have changed their name but we like put out the same record that already had like a lot of success in the scene <laughs> and then just changed the name and put out the same record with like a different vocal take essentially and a different mix yeah that's a that's a um a testament to all you kids out there because we have a lot of kids who listen to this podcast Lots. When you don't woodshed your tunes live and really feel them and get them to the point where it feels great don't record it or demo it but don't release it because i mean that's that's a testament to you guys recording a record doing the vocals hitting the road and going holy shit we can do this so much better yeah. and going back in and saying we got to wipe this and, and redo it but i think too correct me if i'm wrong uh so when did when did fate's got a driver come out Roughly. Was that 95 or 94? Yeah, 95 and, and 96. Yeah, and 96. Yeah. So when did it come yeah. out the first time? Uh, so it comes out in 95. Some of those songs on Fate's Got a Driver, you had been playing for a long time. Uh, at, at least a few of them, maybe. Maybe I'm wrong, but I could swear that I heard you guys playing very primitive versions of a bunch of those songs or some of those songs. Maybe it was one. I don't even know. Um, Probably. It we didn't write a lot like... of songs. <laughs> so it's very possible. Like we we just, everything was so precious back then, you know? You you wrote a, a guitar part and a, a verse and a chorus and it became a song and you would just, uh, I, you know, we all had such egos back then. You just, people are going to freak out when they hear this verse and chorus that I wrote, you know? <laughs> um, and then... Uh, you know, there are all these monumental moments in your life. They felt like it. And now it's ridiculous. Like, you know, I write three songs a day and some of them are sucky and some of them are okay. And, you know, they're not, I'm not that beholden to any of them and they're not that precious. But yeah, back then we just didn't write a whole yeah. lot. Anyway, talking about something far be. No, yeah, really yeah. no, it was just, I, it was just the, uh, like hearing the progression as see, seeing you perform some of that stuff live and then hearing what came out on fate's got a driver was such a, there was such a huge difference between the two. Like it, I found it cool. I always thought it was cool that you guys had something that you were playing in your old form of your band mm -hmm. managed to transition with you as a song and came out on fate's got a driver as an entirely different vibe, entirely different song, but it was the same song. You know what I mean? Like somehow you morphed it into something that fit, everything you were doing currently at that time it was sophisticated very well and you're, and you're right actually union town we put out on like a flexi on the antimatter uh oh yeah on like, oh yeah that's right and, and that was that was before um fates count came out yeah so yeah yeah so right. what gear were you guys using on fates because the band at that point i mean number one obviously better studio producer but i mean at that point the 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 tonal quality of the band just really was i mean it was like perfect um 
Yeah, then we were playing more traditional gear. Like I said, I still had the um uh you know, I actually traded in oh man, I'm getting the chronology all wrong. Uh I believe right before Make it up. nobody's gonna call you out. Yeah. Before Fates, I actually traded in the silver American standard strat I had for a strat plus in the nineties that had the lace sensors. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah. um the locking tuners and I just want to stay in tune, in tune on stage better. Yeah. So I had that guitar, and then I still had the, the Marshall JCM uh, 900. At that point, though, I didn't have the Mesa cab anymore. I bought, like, a regular Marshall 1960A slant cab yeah. with the regular Celestians in it. Um, and well, you uh, learned how to lower the gain knob on it. Yes. Yes. Everything wasn't, yeah, just drown and no mids and gain. Like, we started to kind of, like... Um, yeah, try to get good tone. And you remember what it was like too back then. I mean, I'm assuming you guys are both like this. Like, it's so funny because now I'm just about like, you know, we went to Europe in 2019 and everyone's like, you know, Reese is like, what amp do you want? I'm like, I don't know. They have like a whatever, <laughs> like <laughs> an orange uh, uh, of AC30. Like, I'll make it sound good. I don't care. Like, it'll sound right, like right, a guitar. Right. But back then, like, when, you know, when it was time to like, even on like more than music, like, we would spend like 20 minutes on stage, like, hey clay there's too many low mids in this he's like yeah maybe just turn that down like a hair it was, it was stupid we cared about the sounds of the guitar so much but i think that's probably what made a lot of what made fates what it was you know the way we would just obsess over every voicing of a you know a chord um it all just seemed you know monumentous like bigger than like everything felt bigger than life every little sure. chord you played yeah for sure. So you focused the, on those, yeah. The laboring that you guys did came through. You know, it was, I think, as a, you know, sort of, you know, we were all contemporaries back then. You guys were actually playing in a good band, and Dan and I were writing weird songs. Um, but Objective. at that point, you know, it was like, holy shit, these guys recorded like a real rock record. And, um, and just as everybody was settling into that, you guys took a massive left turn again and you found sort of your folky country roots and man, I mean, you just took playing to the next level again. Well, uh, you know, there was a period in between where we did, we downloaded a bunch of stuff where I, and we went to Europe and I felt like Raptor Fates came out and we did like a, we got like a licensing deal through Doghouse with Polydor, and it was like a really exciting time. Um, but um, I think we were writing kind of our that was like the sweet spot where we were kind of like right in between Fates and Moon, um, where I wish we had made a record then. We all do because I think it would have been we were kind of you know, we had major labels chasing us and that whole thing where all of our friends were getting deals, and we got kind of sucked into that. And then when all that dust cleared we kind of came out of it on the other side and we're like all right what songs are you playing right now um what are we into right now and that's when we made move my saddle but move my saddle is funny because we decided to kind of just pivot into sort of like alt country and we didn't really know how to play any of that stuff like you know i would learn a little like uh pedal steel you know bendy riff and i'd be like oh cool i'll just play this in every part you know <laughs> <laughs> this is the one thing i know how to do um 
you know, I have to play a guitar solo now. I don't really know how to play a guitar solo. I know a couple scales and um, we just kind of figured it out. And the thing was, we, we were living out in Bloomington, Indiana at the time. Like I, I got accepted to Indiana University and the whole band kind of followed me down to keep the band going. Um, but we got sucked into that like Southern Indiana life. And we went and recorded the record at John Mellencamp's uh, guitar player, Mike Wanchek's studio called Echo Park. And like, you know, John's organ player, Mozi played on the record. Um, Mike sang backup vocals. Like we were definitely like, um, we were definitely became enamored with our sort of Indiana identity. I think that was a, a big part of the reason that Mumai Sal ended up the way it did. But at the same time, I feel like it is a unique record in that it's like guys trying to be Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers or something, but I have no idea how to do it. But Charlie's still playing big, emphatic, sort of almost metal like drum parts. You know, Curtis is playing bass like Joe Lally. Yep. <laughs> Just noty all over everything. Um, but that's what made it what it is. I don't think you realize, man, you were a step ahead of everyone. And I think it was the fact that you guys all brought those influences and, and those um approaches together that made that record pretty awesome yeah thank you i appreciate that i mean i think it's it, it's it still feels like an identity crisis of a record when i listen to it because i think we were all sort of just trying to find a common ground and i think that's what makes it what it is you know um those other bands you see where everyone's clearly on the same page wants to do the same thing there was some push and pull, you know, like I said, Curtis, I think Curtis still wanted to be in Fugazi and, you know, Charlie maybe wanted to be in Pearl Jam and, you know, I don't know what I wanted to do. I, I probably wanted to be in the police. Um, yeah. But I mean, you know, and David wanted to be in the band and Clay was just, you know, <laughs> playing power chords. <laughs> I love you, Clay. <laughs> Actually, after all these decades, I don't know that I've ever heard Clay say a word. Oh, he, 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 he talks plenty. <laughs> he's he's so, a he's a really sweetheart of a guy so around. that's got to be one of your first real pro studio um encounters would you learn from mike i mean because you guys were playing some real melodic music you were you were playing with um it, it sounds like you guys were working on orchestration of each song and parts did you learn anything really neat in the studio at that point? Well, it was actually Ray Martin from New York, who we met through um, our friend and an A&R guy named Dave Walter. He did like live sound for a showcase for us in New York. Yeah. Love Dave. Shout out, Dave. Hey, Dave. <laughs> um, and we met Ray through me. He's kind of like the only producer we knew. I think Ray did the Baby Go Pal 7-inch. Yes. Oh really? Yeah. Um. Yeah, he kind of stopped doing music, but he was doing some cool stuff for a while. Um. But Ray uh, came down to Bloomington to record, um, at, to to produce us actually, and I remember him coming to our rehearsal space, and he brought a metronome with him, and we were like, like a just a click track machine, whatever he had, and we we're like, why do we need that? He's like, because you guys are all over the place. You know, I mean, we were joking. Like, we, you know, we just did shows this year and last year. And 
every time we rehearse, Charlie's like, I cannot play along the Fate's Got a Driver. I can't do it. It's schizophrenic. It's just wild. <laughs> um, and it is. Uh, somehow we knew each other so well that we could follow each other and follow the tempo. But, you know, we realized when Ray came down, you know, we started playing, um, I think it was Until the Day Burns Down, which is a song on, on Move My Saddle. Mm. And I was like, wow, why do the choruses feel so slow? And Ray's like, because you're like bumping them up like 9 BPM when you get to the chorus. Uh, so that was the first thing I, we learned. We really learned how to groove on that record. Like I didn't like, I don't think we knew what that was, you know, we just bashed out the songs. Um, but yeah, I mean, we learned how to get like a good live take. I mean, back, back then we were recording to two inch tape and um, it was like a beautiful studio. I learned about like matchless amps and um, Mike Wanchek had a Mesa heartbreaker combo because oh, yeah. he had a deal with Mesa and I, yeah, I, I have a heartbreaker head now because of that studio um, playing that amp. I thought it was, you know, I don't love it as much as I did in, you know, 1998, but um, uh, I'm trying to think what else we learned. I mean, um, we just learned about stuff like how to put, do proper backup vocals and, and put, you know, organ parts and keyboard parts. My friend Jonathan Cohen came and played piano um you know just seeing a piano mic'd for the first time like i'd never seen that <laughs> like i'd never seen um a lot of things we never seen a mellotron we put like a mellotron on stars in the street light like i played slide i didn't even know how to play slide guitar um i think that's largely yeah what makes that record what it is it's just thumbing our way to figure out how to do it and um that sort of angst um makes it not just you know on the surface it sounds just like a roots rock record but um if you listen closely you know you can kind of hear that um that aspirational nature that i'm talking about i think yeah. that's what made it special you know the yeah. experimentation in the studio it was definitely it was a departure from again from what we got used to uh at that point i didn't see you guys after a little while after fate's got a driver kind of had no idea and then uh, I think the first thing I heard was Go Down Believing. Uh, right. And it was such a departure uh, yet again from what you were doing before. But that's, I was curious tonight uh, when we got to this point to talk about, uh, I definitely was curious what changes you made gear wise going into the studio. Did you, were you trying to just get different sounds out of the same kind of gear or not just in the studio? You just told us like, you know, what you're using in the studio, but just in general playing live. Did you change up everything? Did you, were you still trying to get, were you trying to get new sounds out of the same gear that you were using or did you completely shift away from that stuff? Well, like I said, I bought the the Mesa Heartbreaker after that because it was, I felt like, you know, Mar I wanted to get away from, you know, the Marshall sound and the... Um, Didn't we all? Yeah, but I mean, it's hard to break away from it. Um, but I think that's sort of when we, we were talking about this earlier, it's like, the gain didn't always have to be on nine or 10. Like that's when we figured out that like you can hit the guitar a little harder and like get the amp to break up. And that's like where the magic happens. Um, yeah. It's not just, um, you know, hitting the chords as, as hard as you can. Layering some, some extra guitar, you know, tracks to get that same emphasis without all the gain. Well, yeah. I remember even like on the bass side of things, I mean, Curtis, um, you know, he had a, a P bass, um, but 
you know, I was playing SVT because it was like the loudest, biggest thing you could get with like, you know, eight, 10, you know, ridiculous cabinet that we would like basically nap on in the van because it was the biggest surface. Um, but I remember like, you know, um, you know, Ray pulled out like the little B-15, you know, the little flip top. And I was like, that's not going to be enough bass. Like how, how can we, we can't, that's not going to work. <laughs> um, Cause it's funny now, you know, I, I play shows with like a blues junior most of the time um, because I play in a club and that has a sound guy and <laughs> it's Mike go. and uh, stage volume doesn't help anybody. Certainly doesn't help the singer. Awesome. Um, but yeah, that was sort of the, the like learning how to be a, a real band, you know, yeah. like a real rock and roll band. Like that's the best way I can describe it. Like that was that experience of like the 12 days. Yeah, we actually recorded for like 12 days, which like we used to just record the songs in two or three days and be done with the record, you know? <laughs> yeah, you that's a big change in and of itself. Eight hours of the first day. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, again, I feel like I'm getting away from gear now, but you know. Um, no, 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 it's, it's fine. The journey. Yeah, yeah. But I think I discovered pedals then too. Like, you know, I always had just like a Proco Rat, like uh, with a little, you know, red LED, just like a, uh, not like one of the original rats, just like Proco Rat. Um, and that was like all the effects I had. I had my channel switch, you know, my TU2 tuner, which is not an effect, but that's like my whole pedal board. But I remember I bought like a Boss um, DD3 around then and I had like delay. I was like, wow, like this is like really a little delay will like fill up so much space. Right. You came back to Andy Summers at that point. Exactly. You came back to Andy <laughs> Summers. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we were just definitely in like a, a curiosity <laughs> place where we just um, wanted to do something else. And um, I feel like we're still like that. You know, we put out a record in 2020 and we just did right, a lot. Right. Oh, thank you. Um, Red Weather yeah um so good thank you um but yeah we went and recorded that um with our good friend uh carl bramel um who's in my morning jacket in nashville at his place and another studio but yeah i mean you know there's like baritone harmonica and <laughs> you know uh different kinds of synths like we created some like synth loops and, and we didn't go overboard with that stuff but um we definitely wanted to make this like big ethereal record that was just different than anything else we've done i feel like we won't do you know i don't know what else we're going to do from here but we kind of won't do anything that's just like the last thing it's like a disease we have we just can't we just can't do it we have to reinvent because we're stubborn <laughs> Be like, hey, Red Rather is a great record. I'm like, well, I'm glad you feel that way, but we're gonna do something completely, completely different for no fucking good reason. No, it, hey, whatever it works. That's how the band evolved. That's how your band evolves. Is every single record has this new twist to it, and um, and just know that we admire that. That's pretty rad. Well, I appreciate it, but it's weird, you know, because like you know, we get on stage and you know. I don't know what songs to play anymore. And, you know, we just, um, you know, we just put out like a 25th anniversary version of uh, Fate's Got a Driver, um, like a, a vinyl re release. Um, and it's weird pushing it because it's just like, wait, we're still talking about this record? <laughs> like Red Weather just came out and you you put them kind of, you AB them and it just, it, they sound just bananas to get next to each other. <laughs> um, but you know, I appreciate the, that you. Uh, that's a 
I'll take that compliment. That's what I'm trying to say. So did your, did your tastes evolve at all as far as the types of guitars you wanted to play? Like when you were recording that record, were you using other types of guitars? Um, no, no. Like move my saddle or are you talking about red weather? No, you're talking about, we're talking about development. Honestly, anything from, from then on, I'm curious. I was curious is, it's such a departure. And again, like you said, like going into that alt country world, did you, did you change, did you start wanting to look at tellies, semi hollows? Um, no, I think I, I played, I mean, you can tell when this is in my style, like my guitar is, it's, it's got a lot of trouble to it. It's like pretty much my strat, the strat plus. Yeah. Um, I switched out the body. I used to have an alder body. I'm sorry. You used to have a ash body, but I didn't like the the tremolo bar, um, but I liked the sound of the the tram. So I would use my fingers just to kind of yank at the bridge. I ended I up like cracking that. the whole the whole body. Um, then I had to put I put out an alder body on it. Now it's a, it's a different guitar now. But um, yeah, that's what um, I use on that. But I, I used that Strat. I think on just every song. Like I just that was like I felt like that was my sound. But um, no, on Red Weather, I mean, Carl's got like an arsenal of amazing guitars. Like I played, a, you know, Les Paul Jr. He, um, uh, his, he's got like a tally with like um, a humbucker in it. I use my SG. Um, yeah, the SG came SG, by the way? So my, so the SG is my main guitar now. Um, I put, right. sorry, that's squeaky sound. Um, when the SG came around, like after Moon My Saddle, um, I just realized it was when we became a four piece for a while. And I was like, I need a bigger guitar sound. I need humbuckers. So um, I basically, uh, the SG, there's this guy, Seth, who played bass with us, Seth Greathouse. Um, and he had like this SG in like a closet. It was all rusted and like had DiMarzio pickups in it. They're all just gnarly, like metal pickups. So I took them out and put like one original humbucker from the sixties and then a, a copy um, and got it all fixed up and it just became my guitar. <laughs> I was like, wow, I've been playing strats for all these years and I could have such a big sound. I didn't realize that like I could be doing this the whole time. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, that SG is, it's, sorry, it's, it's a 1980. It's actually the SG. Yeah. They're all like wood colored. Um, yep. They sound so much darker than any sg they're so full and um they're amazing and um i was gonna buy i wanted to get like an sg with like a bigsby on it and then i i recently bought um like a vibramate um and i uh well i can show you this we're on zoom we're not just on the podcast that's okay um but yeah i put like the vibramate on there and it's just like it's my favorite favorite guitar in the world yeah it's a banger um, that's great. I have a, I have an 81, uh, firebrand deluxe. It's the, essentially the new, newer version of that guitar just painted, but right. yeah, phenomenal guitars. Uh, yeah. I mean, big SG fans. Yeah. It takes, it takes a steady hand to kind of tame an SG <laughs> and be able to keep it in tune on stage. Um, but like once you, once you get past that and you kind of master that part of it, um, they're just fun. They're not big and heavy and bulky like a Les Paul. And, um, I, you know, I, Clay always played Les Pauls, you know, with Clay had like a 70s Les Paul, like um, 
you know, tobacco burst one with P90s in it. And it sounds awesome. He still plays it. I love it. But, um, you know, they're just so top heavy and, um, they're just like a little too thick for me, you know, just yeah. sonic, sonically. And the SG is like frame. a nice, yeah, <laughs> like me. Yes. I'd like something <laughs> with a little more of a delicate frame. So, uh, you're, you're starting to get into earlier regrets. So you're like, oh, I, re- I, re- I regret getting rid of a lot of things. What's the single biggest regret you have? I regret not having um, some kind of gear we had towards the latter years of the band. Um, when we, you know, broke up the band, um, you know, we sold off a matchless chieftain, which breaks my heart. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and those, off- by the way, those could those could go either way. Either you get an awesome one, or you get one that breaks down like a ford when i was out with sam i am we were on tour with creed and mark tremonti had a wall of i think he kind of at that time wanted to be pearl jam and he had a wall of amplifiers and the amp that broke down on him at least twice a week was the chieftain the chieftain broke down on us in toledo once yeah just on stage just totally cracked out but there's um, no other it doesn't sound like anything else it's just no, a it, unique animal it sounds amazing yeah it, it did sound amazing i wish i still had it but i mean um that that was a, a tough blow but the um the the guitar i regret getting rid of the most was my i talked about it earlier just the i just had an american standard plain old 80s silver strat um with rosewood neck it was just it was just a perfect guitar and i just for some reason i got sucked into the clapton like lace sensors you know strat plus like i was like it's a strat plus i have a strat i could get a strat plus <laughs> the strat plus is obviously <laughs> one better than the strat yeah and you know i was always battling the noise from the single coils on the fender and then the strat plus is like silent i was like this is gonna be great like why would i not want to trade in my guitar for this guitar but we used to call those those so the, the, the lace sensors and then they came out with the noiseless pickups yes and it just they they also got dubbed the toneless pickups <laughs> right yeah that doesn't surprise me yeah yeah <laughs> uh, i never tried the ones that say noiseless on them but um that doesn't surprise me um all the fender i don't want to like I, I i have actually um american original jazz master now but I, I don't like the like fender pickups that are in it like i feel like you just always got to change them yeah, <laughs> yeah get some lollers i uh i just picked up a i wanted a a jazz master but i i'm just not a big fan of fender pickups as much as i wanted to be i ended up with uh gnl doheny uh Interesting. i just like their pickups more they're their own design their mfd Jazzmaster pickups that he designed for that guitar, uh, and I love them. Um, but we should talk offline because I, I desperately, you know, it's like you get in there, go, oh, man, like I have to get a different bridge. Like I can't, you know, I had to get a mastery yeah. bridge put in. Like I spent so much extra money on this, you know, yeah, on this guitar. Um, but yeah, it's like it's funny. You get older, and it's like I just want variety. You know, I've got like a, yeah a guild starfire in a case back there that's just like awesome if i need a hollow body sound like i i want 
to break out the Starfire every once in a while. Like I want good acoustic guitars and you know, but it's awesome. Um, yeah, v- so, variety is a spice of life now. Um, but you know, in the hardcore days, it was not. It was one sound. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of variety, uh, I have a question that I always ask towards, like more towards the end of our conversations. Now that we've heard your variety of gear. So desert island gear, three things. It's the rest of your life. You got to deal with them forever. What are you bringing with you? Doesn't have to be something you have now. It could be something you used to have. Or something that I aspire to own. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I've always wanted a 335 with like a nice 335 with a Bigsby. And I've just never got around to getting one. Um, that. I feel like is like, you know, I would say otherwise my SG would come in second, but th- that, that is a guitar that I just really, really want to own. Um, and I'll own it someday, you know, when, um, maybe when the kid goes to college, <laughs> <laughs> I'll do it. Um, three pieces. That's it. Three oh, pieces. This is a gear. I know it's tough, right? I can't answer it, so I like asking everyone else to do it. I mean, I, we were talking. I talked about this briefly. Um, maybe a part that was edited out, but um, probably like a like a, a deluxe, like a blackface, like deluxe reverb. Yeah. Um, Great amp. Just you know, especially on a desert island. Well, there won't be any any electricity electricity in the desert island, but forget that. Um, you have your coconut bike. It's yeah, Gilligan's okay. Island it's like style. Island. Good. Okay. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, gorgeous reverb, like just um uh just the smoothest kind of like low end to it. Like I just love those amps so much. Yeah. Um and then I'd need a delay pedal. Um I recently bought um I would say it was just like a my memory man or but um I recently bought a source audio collider which is like the the their version of like they combine the reverb and delay into like one pedal so awesome uh, like the best of yeah. each of them yeah. um and then i got a little you know um switch for it as well and uh it's so fun um if i'm going to go onto a desert island like i've got i got to have some effects with me um i i really don't get tired of that thing um it's it's a bit temperamental live but um I've, I've been really enjoying it. It's, it's a recent purchase, but I've been really enjoying it. Nice. It's awesome. Good choices. Nice I'll give you that. So yeah, I've also, I've been chasing a 335 a long time as well. Yeah. Well, I don't know what, why I haven't got, I've bought other guitars in the interim, but I just like, haven't done it. Same. Did you, you get know. your Viking today? Oh, I did get it today. Yeah. Nice. So I've been playing, so talking about semi hollows, I've been playing, uh, we, we do Hagstrom guitars in the u.s so um uh-huh. especially with the release of this new elvis movie the hagstrom from his comeback special is like featured in the movie it's a 67 oh, cool. reissue it's got kind of a stratty looking headstock but um i've been playing vikings like serious in the band that i'm playing in now and i, I just i love the tone it's so great when you when you learn how to play with an amp that actually has tone and you the one that I have has two push pulls so you can make the bridge pick up a single coil but the neck pick up you know 
a humbucker or vice versa it's you get these new palettes of sound right so uh -huh. i i'm a horrible influence um being like dan and i being like straight edge dudes and our only vice is gear every time he buys something like then i need one and and then <laughs> vice versa but the worst right. was when we both went through our divorces or breakups whatever it was and we moved in together as grown men and we had it was two it was disgusting the house was literally overrun with gear there was a garage full of it a basement stuff was just everywhere it was like oh noah's ark because there was two of everything <laughs> so wow, i was well a bad said. influence i was his pusher again and and got him a viking so yep. so the viking you have like the reissue one i'm looking at them right now yeah, that's the reissue one, but just look at the regular Vikings if you like. I, here I am, like pitching, pitching. Now I'm now I'm a bad influence on you, but this Viking, yeah, I I love it. It's it's every bit as good as as any semi hollow on the market. It it sounds incredible. The neck, the cool thing about it, it's got they a look super, cool. yeah, it's got a super stable neck because they use a truss rod that's shaped like an H, and as you tighten it, it expands. So literally, like Justin York from um, from Paramore, mm. his tech will like put it away, and the next night take it out, and it's still perfectly in tune. Right. And they have like some other semi-hollow, custom, like really expensive guitars. Although this is not a cheap guitar; it's well over a thousand dollars. But right. they've got some like handmade, custom-built guitars that like he's got to put a half hour into every day just to get them playable again so uh but a thousand dollars for a hollow body is not i mean for a nice hollow body is not i mean things are just better cheaper now like we yeah we talk about that all the time the quality like of more inexpensive stuff yeah yeah like it used to be like well i gotta get like annoyment or i gotta get like something insane to sound good and it's like all right there's plenty of copies on the market that are undetectably the same i mean uh, people fight me on this but yeah no 100 percent. you're right yeah, I, i'm fully i'm fully in agreement it's it's the the law of diminishing returns in the modern age is completely different than it was 10 20 30 any like a decade ago things were significantly different across the board uh you know for yeah. for the the sonic difference you get for an extra $12,000, you know, it's not like some of these differences between the high end and the low end are just crazy at this point. Yeah. But yeah. if you do, if you buy the Mike Ness Gibson Les Paul, you will sound like social distortion and it's only like 10 grand. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's awesome. It's so perfectly relict, but God, I, I couldn't spend 10 grand on that. Although the, the one that's modeled after is going to be worth about 10 grand at this point. Yeah, nice. exactly. I digress. I want, before we jump off the podcast, I do want to talk a bit about your, your scoring and musical direction, your commercial work that you're doing these days. Um, and it's amazing because we talk about like gear used to be really cheap. Studios used to be really expensive. And now like I'm looking at you, you're in the room in your house and you've got like, you've got just a little bit of gear and you're able to do what used to take hundreds of thousands of dollars to execute. 
Yeah, you can't really actually. I wish I could turn the computer around so you could see what's going on in here, but um, it's it's mounted with like a million things plugged into it, so I won't do that. But yeah, all my gear is like here. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I was um weirdly working at um doghouse records for a while and then um i had like a job offer at like another i won't name them a big like record label and a friend of mine who was at uh chamberlain show at the bowery ballroom came up we to me show. yeah like in nine in 2009 yeah yeah didn't walter play that show yes I had the poster my wall. Walter and, and uh, Garrett's band and Hergeth, uh, Atlantic Pacific. Um, so good. Another underrated band. Everybody who's listening to this, Atlantic Pacific. Awesome. Yeah. Band. Uh, that was a really fun, super, one of the my favorite shows that ever, we've ever played. Uh, but I met this guy, uh, Joe, there, who was working at a commercial music studio called Man Made Music. And he was like, hey, they need a music supervisor. And I went and visited the place. I'm like, it's a studio. Like, there's a recording studio here. And um, through that, um, I started working on some, I mean, I could talk about this all day, but I started working on some commercial pieces, you know, um, for various networks and stuff like that. And um, uh, I met, through that whole process, I, I met a, a guy who, um, uh, my friend Andrew, who was working on a film about basketball in Indiana, a film called Medora. And I kind of just pitched myself to him. I was like, I work in a studio now. Like, do you want someone to score this film? And um, we ended up doing a bunch of music for it. Uh, me and, and my my friend Mickey, who I still work with a lot. And then from there, like, it was like recommendation. I got recommended um, to work on a, a, another film called Nine Man about kind of the history of volleyball. And then Andrew did a 30 for 30 for ESPN. And I got to work on that. And then so sports did... movies are your thing, you're saying? Yeah, I've done it's a couple sports, sports documentaries. Yeah. yeah. And then I've since then done like, um, a lot of social issue movies done stuff for um stars and net we did a film um called night school which i scored start to finish which you can find on netflix and uh a lot of pbs stuff i'm working on a film for discovery right now that i can't really talk about but um uh that's been fun and then you know i wrote a theme song for like a silly reality show on annie and um, i've done ads it's a show called modern dads <laughs> um i weirdly have like an award for it we did like a kind of like a, a hip-hop song for it like a hip-hop meets the white stripes like a ridiculous thing um awesome yeah you can probably find the theme song online don't i wouldn't recommend it well you can bet uh, we're doing it right after we, this <laughs> we now know what your intro is for this episode <laughs> yeah but I, but I, yeah i mean i've i've had you know music and different ads from i feel like i'm giving you an elevator pitch like i'm trying to sell myself on a gig but no, yeah everything no, from like, we're interested yeah. you know we we've all accomplished things after you know dan used to do harry winston you know ads it's oh, wow. uh, it's nuts what people have worked on and where we've been and we and we haven't connected in many years just to sit down and shoot the shit so this is great to hear well it's true i um i uh but yeah i mean i, I in the commercial world I, I like to do films but you know i've done like ads for like um insurance companies and lando lakes butter and <laughs> uh wild turkey like i've just randomly fallen into some weird gigs so that um, means earth crisis will hate both of those yes exactly <laughs> um but yeah um 
I've been really like, you know, for lack of a better term, I've just been really blessed to like just have a few close agencies and directors that I work with, just people that I'm friends with that like me and um, work together well. So um, yeah, it's been super fun, you know, like it's frustrating at times, but like, you know, I'm still playing shows with Chamberlain sometimes and I'm still like just doing music stuff and music supervision and um yeah, I'm, I'm lucky that I still. It's a still, reoccurring that's... theme. Uh, you you describe yourself as lucky, and we all feel, we feel the same way. And I think many of our guests, we talk, and every one of us do, or have done as a career something we absolutely love. Yeah, Dan with graphic design, he was able to turn his art into a career. You recording you know, composing, doing what you love as a career, me selling, but selling musical instruments, being in the musical (laughs) instruments business. I'm lucky. I I talk to dads here who are in insurance or, you know, aerospace, you know, great. You're an aerospace engineer, but did you grow up saying, "I, I love aerospace, right? It's just, maybe they said, I love Aerosmith, but that's another thing. But for us to say that we we're truly blessed and lucky, we have beautiful families, we got great kids, and we do what we love for a living, nothing like it. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, amen. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, do you guys both? You guys both have kids? Yes. Yeah. I had a ten-year-old. Yeah, I see. I have a nineteen-year-old and a eight-year-old. Wow. All right, I'll have to start following you on the socials just so I can see. I follow, yeah, I follow James. So I've, I've seen your son. He's a beautiful kid. Thank you. But um, yeah, we're blessed. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, well, Adam, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a great chat. I hope uh, hope everybody out there gets a little bit of uh, the excitement and passion we have for all the music that Adam's created with his bands over the years. And um, hopefully they follow you and keep track of all the new stuff you're working on. Can't wait to, to, as you said, Discovery Channel, can't talk about it. Now we're really, like, the first thing that comes to mind is dinosaurs. So now I'm, now. No, no, it's, 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 no, it's, it's, you'll, you'll hear about it. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks for joining us. offline about it. Um, But yeah, great, great to talk to you guys. You have to edit this because this was a long, fun conversation. It's really, really fun. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us for it. It's appreciated. Rad. All right. All right. Take care.